You're listening to the Psalms for Sojourners podcast, in which we look at the Psalms as prayers for God's people on every occasion. We hope it's a blessing to you. Hi, and thanks for listening to another episode of Psalms for Sojourners. I'm Cole Kirby, a pastor at Sojourn Montrose and the host of this podcast. And this week, I had the opportunity to sit down once again with Pastor Drew Knowles of Sojourn Heights. This time, Drew and I got together. We got an opportunity to talk about Psalm 39, how it relates to themes explored in the book of Ecclesiastes, and how those themes show us a way in which we can relate to God in the midst of recognizing the vaporous nature of the lives we live. I found the conversation to be pastorally helpful, mentally helpful, and spiritually beneficial, and I hope you find that to be the case as well. Thanks for joining us. All right. Well, I'm here with Pastor Drew Knowles of Sojourn Heights, uh, our first repeat guest on Psalms for Sojourners. Um, And if you've been listening, uh, you know that Drew is a pastor at Sojourn Heights and is in the process of preparing to plant a new Sojourn congregation in Oak Forest. Uh, Drew, it's good to have you. Thanks for having me again. Yeah. Um, Well, I am not going to have you answer the questions that I ask all of our first-time guests because you just answered them a couple of weeks ago. Um, But you wanted to come on today uh, to talk about Psalm 39 and some of the the language used in that psalm and the implications of that psalm and how they connect to some broader themes in the Bible, particularly in the Hebrew Bible. Um, And so before we get started, do you want to just read Psalm 39 for us? Happy to. Happy to. Um, And before I do, I want to say, as I I move through, whenever I see um, the word LORD in all caps, I'm I'm going to read that as the name Yahweh. Um, and, and there's a few reasons for that. Um, the, the word Lord is, strictly speaking, not a name. It's a title. And so when we translate the, the name Yahweh as Lord, we're, we're, kind of, we're kind of changing the meaning of the text. Um, plus, Yahweh is, is much more personal than the word we translate as God. Um, the God of David, the God that David is addressing here, is not some distant Lord who's executing justice from his throne in the heavens or um, disciplining David from a distance, uh, th- this is a God who has a name, and he has come to dwell with his people and to fight their battles and to, to, to lead them through the wilderness and, and all of that. Um, and so I want to use the name Yahweh, especially in this psalm, because I think it's meaningful that David addresses not just God, but God's personal name, Yahweh, while in his distress. So, um, Psalm 39, verse 1. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Yahweh, Make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, 
and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Yahweh, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Thanks. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, well, first, just as we're getting started, um, what particularly in Psalm 39 um, compelled you to want to, to have a broader discussion about it? Sure. Um, I actually just had the, the privilege of teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes over the past few months, and um, there's a word at the beginning of Ecclesiastes that the ESV translates as vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Um, that, that same word in the Hebrew we find uh, three times here in Psalm 39. Um, so that's what initially drew me to, to Psalm 39, but uh, Psalm 39 has wonderful things in it just standing alone from Ecclesiastes as well. So um, happy to talk about that as well. Yeah, I mean, as we just start looking at it, um, what are some of the things that that you notice or that you think are important um, just kind of from the onset in regards to maybe themes in the psalm or uh, just what David is saying here? Yeah, so I think the, the fundamental question that David is asking is why, why should God even care to discipline a creature as, as fleeting as man? Um, it's, it's similar to Job 7. Job says, what, what is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. Um, and what's striking to me is, is thinking about from the, from the perspective of David, from the perspective of Job, how, how would you experience hardship and suffering in the world if you didn't have the gospel as a lens through which to interpret, um, if you didn't know the story of God incarnating himself into that hardship and suffering, um, I, th I, think, I think we have a distinct privilege living on this side of the gospel uh, when it comes to interpreting our hardships. Um, and so this is a real tension for David, but I think it's notable that he is he's addressing God directly. He's not complaining to others. In the presence of others, he's keeping silent. In the presence of God, he is laying out his complaint. Um, I, I think that's powerful. I think it's powerful that the Bible would, and this has been said in previous episodes, but give us permission to speak this way. Um, you know, in, in verse 13, David says, look away from me. 
And that, that reminds me of Peter telling Jesus to depart from me. Um, and it's okay to say these things. It's God understands our speech in the midst of our desperation. It's like a, a teenager who screams, I hate you, I'm never going to speak to you again. Um, from the perspective of a parent, you can interpret that desperate speech in, in, a, in a more healthy way with greater wisdom. And I think God can do the same for us. So, Yeah, and I, I think that the sort of emotion that is evoked, even in hearing David say, look away from me, and coupling that with the point you made before reading the psalm, that God has revealed himself with this personal name, like a real name by which we can call him in Yahweh. It, there's this relational element that, that comes forth where like being in distress and saying, look away from me is something that all of us have done to a loved one. Like, like I'm hurting so much. Just don't even look at me. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm even frustrated with you to the point that I don't want you to look at me. Yeah. Um, I feel hurt by you or I, f I feel like I, I feel almost ashamed of how desperate I feel and I don't want you to see me in it. And so there's something very visceral that we can feel in that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, as we, uh, so, so, so that's kind of the place that David is coming from is this place of looking at his life. And, and I won't say that the meaninglessness of it, but the fleeting nature of it, the, the fact that he's here for a moment, he's gone the next and, and wondering how God could even really care about him. I mean, we see that in Psalm 8 when David is looking up at the stars and says, who is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? And, and we see this theme of David moaning before the Lord all throughout the Psalms, maybe climaxing in Psalm 55 where he says, in evening and in morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and I moan and you hear me and you rescue me. And so we see kind of all of those things here in Psalm 39. And, and you have made this connection between what David is expressing in Psalm 39 and essentially what the entirety of the book of Ecclesiastes is pointing us toward. And so do you want to just open up with some of those themes and some of that language? Sure. So there's the word I mentioned earlier is the Hebrew word hevel, and we find it three times in this psalm. We First, first of all, we find it in verses 5 and 6. Um, he says, Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. That breath is Hevel. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing, Hevel, again, they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And then jumping down to verse 11, When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath, hevel, again. Uh, it's, it's interesting to remember that this psalm was written by David. Ecclesiastes was written by the son of David, Solomon. Um, Solomon knew this psalm. He grew up singing this psalm. And so when he opens Ecclesiastes with essentially hevel of hevels, all is hevel, I, 
I like to think he was drawing from the wisdom of his father. Um, in fact, the, the book of Ecclesiastes, and you alluded to this, is in part an exploration of the questions raised by David in Psalm 39. Uh, because, and this, this is taught all throughout the Bible, but our span of life is a mere breath. It's, it's hevel. And, and for some reason, it's good for us to remember that. The Bible teaches us that it's good for us to acknowledge that and keep that in mind. Um, so, sorry. Uh, yeah, I think that, I, I think one, in a moment, I'd love to just kind of work through how do we define this word hevel that is translated a number of different ways uh, into the English and w with good intention and by good Hebrew scholars, but it, it sometimes misses the mark. And so, so what do like, what do we really make of the meaning of that word? Um, I think is an important question. And, and also I think that it's interesting to note or to draw attention to what you just said, which is that the Hebrew Bible and particularly David and Solomon seem to think there's something very important for us in recognizing th the hevel in life um, and yeah. the fleetingness of life. And yet, as Westerners in the 21st century, I think that that we are we're always trying to to put an opposite spin. On things. We're trying to remind ourselves and our children how meaningful our life is and how, how lasting it is. And, and um, there's this great triumph of self that we try to build up. Um, and yet what the Lord is showing us or Yahweh is showing us in his word is, is that actually there is more to be explored and to be gained in recognizing the fleeting shortness of life than to putting so much importance on the number of our days. Um, there's a way in which our days are more important when we realize how fleeting they are. Um, yeah. And that just seems counterintuitive. Well, if you think about it from the perspective of a, an elderly person with regrets, um, thinking about how short your life is ought to change your life. It ought to change how you're living your life. Ecclesiastes has kind of a, a bad reputation, I think, but I don't think it's deserved because Solomon is not, he's not being nihilistic. He, he's not saying that life is meaningless, which is, is how some translations have, have translated Hevel. Um, he's, not, he's not even really despairing. He's just being realistic. Um, because life is vapor, and, and on account of that vapor, we ought to live our lives fully and live them with joy. Ecclesiastes commends joy on seven different occasions. Solomon takes a break to, to remind us, pursue joy, um, because life is short. Um, so, and not only pursue joy, but also entrust yourself to the God who the way we said it in the class was, has victory over the vapor, the God who has mastered the mist. And, and we'll talk about that more in just a bit. But um, 
by way of defining the word or, or kind of uh, putting forward a positive definition of the word, um, it's used all throughout the Old Testament. The word is usually uh, used to refer to mist or vapor or breath or here in verse 30, I mean, in Psalm 39, nothing. It refers to nothing. Um, it's also very interesting to note that the name Abel is an English transliteration of the Hebrew word Hevel. The life and death of Abel is a, is a real-life parable that demonstrates what Solomon and what David before him were attempting to communicate here. Um, Abel, who, who is the son of Adam, disappears from the narrative pretty much as soon as he enters. And, and so do we pass through this world. As Abel's the sons life, of Adam, yeah. Yes, yeah. Abel's life was seven verses long. That was it. Um, but, you know, we're still talking about him. His life wasn't meaningless. Um, but then in the, in the words of James, the, the book of James, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Obviously, that's not in Hebrew, um, but he's drawing on the same theme. Yeah. So I think as we translate the word hevel in the Bible, we, we ought to maintain the metaphor here. We, we don't just, um, we don't empty the word of the metaphor for the sake of a, a more abstract definition like vanity. Uh, we, we want to deal with the fact that Solomon is saying that life is vaporous. It doesn't last for long. We, we can't see clearly through it. We can't grab it. We can't control it. Um, and really, when we, when we attempt to take hold of vapor, it disappears all the more quickly. Um, so I, I think it's important to maintain that metaphor when we translate and to really, to really picture in our mind what is being described about our life. Uh, I think that's helpful. Yeah, I think that this, the idea of vapor is, I, I, it's really a helpful visual. You know, thinking about steam coming up from a boiling pot and there's, it, it clouds your vision of what you can see on the other side, but it's gone in a moment. And if a breeze comes through, it's vanishing away. And it, it can't be held or captured apart from like building an elaborate device to do so. Um, yeah, you, you can't harness it. And, and you, you certainly can't control how long it will last because a change in temperature or a, a stiff wind will, will drive it away in a moment. And, and so that is what David and Solomon are telling us about the life of man is that it's here for a moment, sometimes longer for others. And, and yet all it takes is one circumstance, one act of God for it to end. And so for the time we are vapor, we ought to make the best of it. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. And, and recognize that we are not as in control as we like to pretend that we are. Um, one thing we talked about was that we, we, cannot, we cannot deal with our fear and anxiety and depression by just thinking happy thoughts all the time or by distracting ourselves from reality or, you know, binging another show. Um, because 
our fears and anxieties and depressions are actually rooted in reality. We're anxious because we see what the world is really like. Um, and so uh, we have to face that. In, in order to overcome fear and anxiety and depression, we're going to have to face head on the real world that we're living in and actually name what is vaporous and sit in the vapor and consider the vapor and deal with it and, and learn to trust God in the midst of the vapor. Because God, the Bible presents God as shrouded in vapor uh, repeatedly. He places his bow in the clouds, the rainbow. He, he leads the people by a pillar of cloud through the wilderness. His glory descends in a thick cloud on Mount Sinai. Vapor covers and fills the tabernacle and temple. And then Ezekiel is given a vision of Yahweh on his chariot, shrouded in cloud and fire, yet in complete control. Um, and so we, the, the picture is of God surrounded by vapor and, and riding upon vapor. And then we see Jesus in the New Testament overshadowed by vapor on the Mount of Transfiguration. We see him carried up into heaven upon a cloud. Um, so I, I think what we're being taught in the context of Ecclesiastes, in the context of Psalm 39, is that God's presence and glory are actually seen in the vapor, through the vapor. So yes, the world is vaporous, but that, that vaporous world is the world in which God wants to meet us and commune with us. Um, so we, we can entrust ourselves to him and really take joy in the midst of all that. I, yeah, I, that's, it's such a beautiful thought of we are, our lives are but vapor and we are subject to all the vaporous things in the world around us that are overwhelming that we can't control. And yet we can rest in the fact that the God who has called us, chosen us, and loved us is the Lord of the vapor. Um, it, it makes me think of, that's not the only time in the scriptures that we see this image of these overwhelming sort of natural occurrences that, that man on his own can't harness, but that, that God shows, I am the Lord of this, and when you're with me, you're safe. I mean, I think of Jesus calming the storm like there's this event where the disciples are f afraid for their life with good reason. And yet they realize they have the Lord of, of the storm in their boat and, and therefore they can take heart or the people of Israel entering into the sea of reeds. And the only way that they can do that is the Lord of the waters is with them. You know, he's the one who tells the waters where to stop and where the earth begins. And so he can yeah. save them through it. And so though we are vapor, we have the Lord of the vapor, the one who shrouds himself in vapor. He, he can harness it and we cannot. And that's a really beautiful image. And, and I, I think that piece on that you were talking about with dealing with anxiety and depression and fear is really helpful because I think so many of us, either all the time or at least in varying moments in our life find ourselves overwhelmed by the circumstances in our lives that we can't control or just the reality of of there is too much to do i am 
I am too small and weak to handle it all. And, and what, what am I to do? And yet the Psalms and Solomon through Ecclesiastes and even in the Proverbs lend to us this wisdom of life with, in relationship with Yahweh, where, where we can find that balance, where we can dwell on the fact that the Lord of the vapor is with us and, and that it is not up to us to solve every problem to fix every broken piece, but it is up to us to trust in the Lord of the vapor and to use the things he's given us in the place he's put us for the time he's allowed us to be there to the best of our ability by the power of his spirit to do some good. And, and I think there's this fear in the idea of a vaporous life of how can we ever lead a, leave a legacy a meaningful legacy if life is just vapor. But the scriptures show us the opposite, right? Like you mentioned it with Abel. His life is truly vapor. He was called vapor. And yet we still speak about him. David and Solomon recognized life is vapor, and yet we learn from them. And, and so it has been with men and women of the faith for thousands of years and will continue to be the case. Yeah. I think I think God has so constructed the world that we are forced to live by faith. That's that's our only that's our only recourse, either nihilism or faith, and entrusting ourselves to a God who is in control. Because um, pretending to be in control isn't isn't going to help. It's not going to work. Uh, but if if we if we know a being, if we know a God, and not just any God, but a God who has given us a personal name, whether it's Yahweh or Yeshua, Jesus, He has a personal name. We know Him personally. We are in covenant with the God who is in control of all that is vapor. Um, that that is the ground upon which we stand in a world like this. Yeah, I think, man, that's just, it's so pastorally helpful um, to think in that way and to be able to see the connections, uh, the consistent themes throughout the scriptures pointing us to the same thing, right? Which we see over and over again in the scriptures is these consistent themes that flesh themselves out to teach us the same thing over and over and over again, Um I'm even thinking now about like what is harnessed vapor but water and like our God is the one who saves us through the waters. Um, We see that in the crossing of uh, the sea um, out of Egypt and we see that in baptism is that like the Lord has harnessed vapor, which to us, when our vapor is harnessed, we we just die, right? Like when, when the fullness of the vaporous life that we lead is harnessed. It's just the end. It's our death. And yet we are saved through that because of the Lord of the vapor. And that's a really beautiful thought. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, there's a quote. Well, there's a, there's a book called Living Life Backward by David Gibson. It's, it's not really a commentary on Ecclesiastes. It's more of a, um, it's more of a Christian living book 
based on Ecclesiastes, but I wanted to share a quote from it because I do think he captures not just what Ecclesiastes is about, but what David is saying in verse 4. O Yahweh, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. That sounds depressing. It's not something we really want to commit our minds to, um, but Ecclesiastes teaches us that death is a, a wonderful teacher for us, a, a wonderful guide. So, in the words of David Gibson, Ecclesiastes teaches us to live life backward. It encourages, encourages us to take the one thing in the future that is certain, our death, and work backward from that point into all the details and decisions and heartaches of our lives, and to think about them from the perspective of the end. It is the destination that makes sense of the journey. If we know for sure where we are heading, then we can know for sure what we need to do before we get there. Ecclesiastes invites us to let the end sculpt our priorities and goals, our greatest ambitions and our strongest desires. I want to persuade you that only if you prepare to die can you really learn how to live. Wow, that's beautiful and it's powerful. And it's also just rooted in so many other scriptural contexts from Jesus telling his disciples that that to to gain your life you must lose it um or from the author of hebrews talking about uh the men and women of faith before the time of christ how they longed for a better country um and they longed for this future reality that that would come after their fleeting days were done um and in a sense that is still what we are doing we are striving and working for the full consummation, the full establishment of God's kingdom, though it will likely not come in our lifetime. And, and yet we long for that which comes after death. Um, and we participated in those things in our life. Um, I think that quote is a great place uh, for us to, to wrap it up. And man, this has been... It's been a helpful conversation for me. Um, yeah, those uh, those concepts are really beautiful. So thanks for thanks for sharing those things and and pointing me and those who are listening toward them. Thanks for the opportunity. Happy to be here again.